um, the latest edition of uh, Simmons and Simmons Accelerate Digital uh, podcast. Um, my name is Francis Doherty, and I am a partner in the uh, COCOM uh, department. And uh, I specialize in working with high growth technology companies, and I'm a relatively recent um, addition to the firm. And I'm joined by my colleague, uh, Mandy Perry. Hi there, so I'm Mandy Perry. I'm a partner in the Simmons & Simmons London employment team, and I also specialize in the tech sector and also media and telecoms. So we are going to be talking about uh, something that Mandy and I have quite a lot of experience in working in, and those are acquihire transactions. Um, they are... Um, they have increased in popularity over, I'd say, the last 15 years, and I've worked on a whole bunch of them. Um, so what actually is an acquihire transaction? Well, it's the act of buying a company primarily to um, acquire the skills or expertise of the staff of the company rather than to acquire the products or services that the company supplies. So generally, these transactions tend to be of um, companies which are at the beginning of their, uh, their journey. Um, they're usually pretty early stage, but what they have managed to do is to uh, gather together a very um, cohesive um, and highly skilled team. And in circumstances where a company, for example, a Google, a Facebook, an Amazon, is struggling to get the right caliber of team, these can be really, really useful ways of adding some very high quality um, individuals to the team. Um, there may also be some other assets that are acquired. And in certain circumstances, the company may have already taken some um, investment from um, a venture capital firm or a seed capital firm. Um, and so um, there are different ways of structuring it. So the way that I have um, worked on most recently has been an acquisition of the whole company because the buyer in this particular situation was a US corporate and they wanted to establish um, a research and development team in uh, in the UK and they identified the team they identified that the team had the skills and they also realized that this, that, that, that that the IP that they had already managed to create could be very valuable to them. So they did an acquisition of the whole company. But Mandy, I know that you've done different structures of these types of acquihire transactions. Maybe you could talk about that. Sure. Well, given that employees are often critical to these deals, it can lead to a variety of issues. Um, the first question is, what kind of deal is it? So sometimes, as you say, there are share sales. Uh, sometimes it's an asset sale. But also, if you just want the employees and nothing else, so you don't want any IP, you don't want any of the tech, you just want the talent, um, then you may have a situation where you're just making employment offers to a team of people. In those circumstances, it's possible that you may also, as well as making generous offers in those circumstances, 
you may also be paying some consideration to release claims by the company, by the remaining company. And also potentially, as you say, some of these companies have already had early investments. So you may be making a payment to smooth the acquire with the investors. The, the issue that can arise with this, of course, is Chupi and whether the employees themselves, by transferring to you, to the buyer, are an identifiable entity which retains its identity post-transfer. It's risky to take a risk on Chupi, as everybody knows. So it's only in cases where you feel confident that it's the talent that you want, first of all, and nothing else. And also you feel confident that post-transfer, they're going to be subsumed into the new employer and they're going to do work using their skills, but it's not going to be the same work that they were doing previously. So there'll be a different form to what they're doing. Um, otherwise, it's easier to just do uh, a standard SPA or APA and comply with Chupi. As I say, it's never a good idea to take risks on Chupi. The other issue that comes up a lot is the status issue, because a lot of startups use a contractor model in the early stages to avoid creating employment relationships, which can end up being troublesome because the employment tribunals in the UK and HMRC look at these relationships based on the factual reality and not what you choose to call them or what the companies try and classify them as. So you could have a period of misclassification on your hands, which could mean there's a tax liability, which you need to fix before the acquire. But of course, this is not exclusive to acquire's. What is exclusive and critical, not exclusive, but certainly critical to acquire is retention. So, Francis, I know that you do lots on the corporate side in terms of retention. So tell us a bit more about that. Well, in in a, a normal uh, share sale and purchase agreement, um, you're acquiring the company, but what the buyer will be acquiring is effectively the team and they want to make sure that the team are motivated to stay and that the value that they are effectively buying will um, they will be able to continue to uh, leverage that value for a period of time after the acquisition. So therefore, what we would normally expect to see is some kind of staged payment. So an initial payment to the um, individuals and then a, a payment after 12 months, a further payment after 24 months, and so on and so forth. Maybe also uh, bringing those individuals into existing um, employee share option schemes within the buyer's group, or um, in the case of a US acquirer, they may be restricted stock units um, um, issued to the individuals. All of this is motivated around making sure that those individuals are sticky and will stay with the business and help to create that value. Uh, obviously, what they don't want to do is to have those individuals, um, you know, take the initial payment and then walk out through the door because obviously that's that's not what they're buying. Um, one of the other things just to think about, just I'm picking up on what you said about contractors, is one of the issues that often comes up in these types of transactions is where contractors have developed IP in the target business. Um, and obviously, IP created by um, contractors doesn't automatically uh, become part of the um, IP of the, of the company that's being acquired. So you need to make sure that there is 
um, a proper link and title uh, of any IP that's being created by someone who isn't an employee. So that's an issue that comes up remarkably quite a lot. Obviously, a lot of the companies that are the subject of these acquihires are early stage. They don't have an awful lot of money. And so what they will do is kind of fill gaps where they might need somebody who will develop a particular part of the product. So they'll bring that person in on a contract basis, um, but they'll forget that actually, you know, you need to make sure that the IP um, that's being created by that contractor actually belongs to the business. So I think that's um, I think that that's that's one of the issues that comes up a lot. So Mandy, how do you um, ensure effective um, post-termination restrictions in the context of an acquihire deal? Yeah, so again, that's really important. And likewise with the intellectual property, what you often find with these companies is that in that early growth, rapid growth stage, a lot of things fall off the table. And HR employment contracts is certainly one of the things that we see. So you can, you look at these companies and often either there's no contracts of employment in place with no post-termination restrictions, or if there are, they're just not very uh, very fit for purpose. So what you need to do is look to put new employment contracts in place critically. One thing that often gets missed in that is because the employees will have continuing employment, you're introducing post-termination restrictions uh, during employment rather at the beginning of employment. And there's a weird legal requirement around that, that they have, in order to be enforceable, you have to offer express consideration. So it's not hard to find something in the transaction that you can dedicate to this purpose, such as a small bonus or uh, an additional days paid holiday or something like that. But it has to be expressly dedicated to those new post-termination restrictions. So we all know that post-termination restrictions can be difficult to enforce uh, when it comes to it, but you certainly don't want to fall at the first hurdle on enforceability and need to make sure that you think about that consideration at the time. Uh, so Francis, just to um, finish off, I wonder if you could give us some information on the main problems you've come across in these types of transactions. Well, I think all of the problems that we've kind of identified, Mandy, really go back to that sort of early stage period where yeah. a company doesn't have a lot of money. And so they they may not view um, spending on legal or accounting advice as being a particularly um, critical spend at that early stage when funds are limited. A completely uh, normal um attitude for a lot of founders to take. So what we tend to find happens is that there may have been some um, change in the cap table when as between founders. So they may have uh, had three founders and lost one of them who decided to go and do something else. And then they reallocated that um, exiting founder shares. What we tend to find is that we have to spend quite a lot of time thinking about a cleanup operation around that because um, if you do transfers um, of shares or a further issue of shares um, without doing a 431 election, um, there are some opportunities uh, uh, to unfortunately fall into some traps which can uh, 
um, mean that the shares that were issued or transferred to that individual would be treated as an employment-related security, which is a very different tax outcome to what it would have been um, had it been um, uh, uh, properly properly done. So um, that's something that comes up alarmingly frequently, unfortunately. Um, the other thing to remember is that even though these companies are very uh, early stage and therefore not profitable, there's a tendency to think that because there are no profits, there are there are no tax um, uh, concerns, which of course isn't the case because um, when a buyer comes in to have a look at the business, they are going to look at uh, how the company has run its tax affairs. And that includes things like PAYE um, and uh, VAT compliance um, and everything else besides. So we do end up spending quite a lot of time advising founders on, on those matters. Um, so those are the kind of things that come up most regularly, Mandy, and I think you've come come across a few of those as well in the past. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, we're talking about the same thing, aren't we, with the tax status of the contractors as well, which can exactly. often be troublesome. Exactly. So, um, well, I think I think there's we could talk all afternoon about this probably <laughs> Mandy couldn't we but um, I think uh, we'll probably have to draw it to a close. Thanks for your time and uh, You're welcome. Don't forget to listen to um, all of the other Accelerate Digital podcasts um, through your normal podcast provider. Thanks very much.